This week, our second episode of Presidential is starting outside the White House, and I'm asking visitors what they know about John Adams. Not too much. <laughs> no. Watch the, watch the HBO series on John Adams with uh, Paul Giamatti. Uh, he was the second president of the United States. I don't know. If you're one of the rare people who do already know quite a lot about John Adams, the chances are good that that's thanks to David McCullough. You either read his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Adams, or maybe you too saw that HBO miniseries from a couple years back starring Paul Giamatti. That was based on McCullough's biography. But even historian David McCullough would say that history has not done a whole lot to keep John Adams top of mind for us today when it comes to American presidents. We have to realize that popular symbolism has not been very generous toward Adams. He is the only one of our founding fathers for whom there is no memorial, no statue, no building in his honor in our nation's capital. And to me, that is absolutely inexcusable. It's a long past time when we should recognize what he did and who he was. I'm Lillian Cunningham, and this is the second episode of Presidential. Shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A state which will live in infamy. Of our first three presidents, Washington and Jefferson have iconic memorials in D.C., and Adams has... So we're going to look at why that is and explore the question of how monuments shape our collective memory of which presidents are important. But first, let's get a better sense of Adam's character and his early story. John Adams grew up in as simple, as difficult a beginning family childhood life as Abraham Lincoln. His, um, there was perhaps only one book in the house, and that was the Bible. His mother was almost certainly illiterate, uh, but he was a very bright boy, and he worked very hard, and he got a scholarship to Harvard. Now, we shouldn't think of the great Harvard University of the present day. This was a small college, but as he said, I discovered books and, and read forever. And he then went on to get a law degree and practice law as a young man in the vicinity of Boston. They lived in Quincy, Massachusetts. And he made his first big mark in our story as a country when he defended the British soldiers who had been participated in what was called the Boston Massacre. Nobody else would defend them. Okay, so just a little context here. The Boston Massacre happens in 1770, when British soldiers end up killing five people in Boston. It's possible it's not entirely their fault, but they're likely to get the death penalty, and no lawyer in Boston wants to defend these soldiers. John Adams ends up being the only person who says he will. David McCullough says this is because he believes so firmly in the law and the idea that the accused are innocent until proven guilty, but... 
Adams is basically prepared for this to be the end of his career. Well, instead, he actually ends up winning the trial and gaining some renown for his bravery and his integrity. Fast forward a bit, and as he becomes more of a public figure, he goes on to take part in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, which leads to the creation of the Declaration of Independence. He was the great on-the-floor spokesman for the Declaration of Independence. He was the one that battled to make it happen. Jefferson wrote most of it with help from Franklin and Adams, but Jefferson would not get up and defend what he felt had to be done and left that all to Adams, and Franklin much preferred to sit and listen, maybe make an occasional comment. So it was that that put John Adams on the map, and there really was nobody like him. He could be feisty, he could be critical of other people, but he also had a wonderful sense of humor. He loved to be with people. He loved to have a drink. He loved to gather with, in the taverns at night and talk with the other delegates. And he was sturdy physically, he, though he was not very tall or impressive uh, man compared to someone like Washington or, or Jefferson. He was hard as a rock and immensely likable once you got to know him. Uh, he's... he's a character. He, he was, he's a character in a play. And I like his determination. He won't give up. He never had any money. He, he couldn't afford servants or fine clothing or the other trappings that Jefferson and Washington and others were uh, known for. Um, and he had a marvelous wife. I think Abigail Adams is one of the most admirable Americans ever. Uh, John Adams was the only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And Abigail, his wife, uh, was even more adamant on the subject. So before Adams ends up becoming president himself, he served as vice president to George Washington. You'll remember from last week's episode that Julie Miller from the Library of Congress talked about how one of Washington's main traits was his self-control. So Adams, who came after him, was very different. He was emotionally, did not have self-control. He just said whatever he thought. He was not silent in company. He talked and talked and talked, and people couldn't stand him. Uh, John Adams always would tell the truth, and it often got him in a lot of trouble, and it was often seemed unkind or tactless, but that was in his nature. His talkative nature was in contrast to Jefferson, who did not like public speaking. We're going to explore that detail more in the next episode, but in the meantime, it's really hard to talk about Adams without discussing his relationship to Jefferson. When Adams becomes president, he beats Jefferson by only three votes. And because of the electoral process at the time, this makes Jefferson his vice president. Even though political parties have started to form at this point, and Adams is on one side with the Federalists, while Jefferson is over on the other side as a Republican. Adams and, and Jefferson were very close during the time of the Revolution, and particularly when they were both serving abroad in France. After they came back and the country got going and 
the political parties began to form, they became rivals, and then eventually they became enemies when uh, Jefferson was found to be hiring somebody to uh, defame uh, Adams and attack him at every chance, and Jefferson was paying for that. Uh, But then after their retirement, it was Adams who wrote to Jefferson saying, it's time that we we make up and be friends again. And they did. And Jefferson responded to it very warmly. And they began a correspondence that lasted through to the ends of their lives that's one of the most wonderful treasures of letters uh, between two very important Americans. Julie Miller took me through some of the correspondence they have at the Library of Congress between Adams and Jefferson once both of them had retired. And she points out how much, even in their old age, they continued to debate these things that had happened during their presidencies. Here's Julie explaining some of their exchanges about the Alien and Sedition Acts in particular. These were passed when Adams was president, 1798. And the context for this is this thing called the quasi-war with France. In other words, during this period, England and France were at war. Um, and there was a fear, Americans had a fear, which was not manifested, that France was going to invade the United States. And in fact, Washington was called out of retirement to lead an army, which it didn't, none of this happened. It didn't happen, but they were worried about it. So it was in that context that, in particular, the Alien Acts were passed. All of which made it really hard for not, you know, for immigrants to settle in the United States. And the particular immigrants Adams, as president, was worried about were French immigrants. When Jefferson became president, in his inaugural address, he wrote, for example, here he wrote, "I cannot omit recommending a revisal of the laws, in other words, the Alien Acts, on the subject of naturalization, considering the ordinary chances of human life, a denial of citizenship under a residence of 14 years, in other words, the Naturalization Act." said that you had to live in the country for 14 years before you could apply for citizenship. Um, blah, 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 that's not the important part. Okay. Then he says, shall oppressed humanity find no asylum on this globe? So Jefferson is saying, you know, we really shouldn't have these alien acts that are unfriendly to French refugees because, you know, these are people fleeing from the terror and we really should harbor them. But then here, many years later, 1813, Adams responding to very mean things that Jefferson said about Adams at the time. Adams reminds Jefferson, he says, we were then at war with France. French spies swarmed in our cities and in the country. Some of them were intolerably turbulent, impudent, and seditious. To check these was the design of this law. Was there ever a government which had not authority to defend itself against spies in its own bosom? Spies of an enemy at war. So they're they're arguing years later about these issues that had been meaningful to them. What's interesting also about this, a whole series of letters, Adams's tone is, I think, you know, sometimes really, really funny. So again, 1812, Adams writes to Jefferson. He writes, You and Mr. Madison had as good a right to your opinions as I had to mine, and I must acknowledge the nation was with you, but neither your authority nor that of the nation has convinced me, nor I am bold to pronounce will convince posterity. So he, he did not mince words. But then, I think really very touchingly in another letter, written around the same time, he writes, you may expect, he writes another letter where he's complaining and he's arguing and he writes, 
you may expect many more expostulations from one who has loved and esteemed you for eight and 30 years. Mm. You know, it's, it's really very touching. I asked David McCullough how he thought this dynamic relationship between the two of them, really over the course of their lives, influenced them, their thinking or their presidencies. Well, I'm sure that Jefferson uh, envied Adams' ability to get into the fight, to get into the arena, as Theodore Roosevelt would say. Um, He just didn't have that as part of his nature. And I like to think that Jefferson also realized the hypocrisy of the whole slave system. Uh, All men are created equal, he wrote. And there he's living on the labors of people that he owns and sells uh, like they were uh, part of his livestock. And I'm sure that, in a way, Jefferson must have envied Adams fact that he had grown up and was raised on the exactly opposite outlook on life, that nobody mm-hmm. should be the master over another uh, or, or to own slaves. Nobody should do that. We forget how many people were opposed to slavery well before the Civil War. Uh, this was an issue right at the heart of the beginning. And the, they, the two of them personified it, the differences there. Adams was always seeing things in the long run, which comes from a sense of history. Because you can see backward, you can also see forward. What's the best, the right decision for the country in the long run? John Adams lives to be 90 years old. And he dies at his home in Quincy, Massachusetts, on the 4th of July. And not just any 4th of July, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And then there's something even more remarkable. Thomas Jefferson dies on the very same day, only a few hours before Adams. If you put that in a novel, nobody would believe it. Your editor would tell you to take it out. How how in the world could it happen? But it did happen. And the truth is often far more extraordinary than fiction. That brings us forward to present-day Washington, D.C., where the Jefferson Memorial looms commandingly over the cherry blossoms and the tidal basin. Adams once predicted that Quote, monuments will never be erected to me. And so far, he's been mostly right. A John Adams memorial is nowhere to be found in D.C. You know, I think he wasn't remembered nearly as well as the other early presidents. Um, And I think it's because he had a very hard time. He had a single term as president. And he spent it, in a sense, struggling to keep the United States out of war. You know, so he he didn't, um, and he passed these very unpopular aliens editions, right, for which, you know, we don't, we, you know, it was felt at the time, and I think people still feel we're a mistake, you know, really a mistake. So he, he, and he was personally difficult, you know, he didn't get along that well with people, but it was also understood that he was very brilliant, very dedicated, very patriotic. It's 
involved with several things. First of all, the Federalist Party vanished. We don't have a lot of Federalists around who would love to see Adams given his due uh, recognition. You have to have a constituency to get Congress to really do something about the memory of a particular person. And there is no great John Adams constituency that will go out and march and try to uh, lobby Congress to do something to justify this glaring uh, omission. While there may not be a huge constituency, it turns out there is an effort underway to get an Adams Memorial in D.C. There's a group called the Adams Memorial Foundation, which is mostly made up of family descendants of Adams. And in 2001, they got authorization by the Congress to move forward with a plan for a monument. Okay, what that authorization means is basically that they have seven years to go through all the steps to get a building permit for a memorial. Well, they didn't do that in the first seven years they had, and so the authorization expired, and then it was renewed again, and then it expired, and it was renewed again. So it's currently on its third authorization, and they have until the year 2020 to go through all of these steps for the permit. So I talked with the Washington Post's art and architecture critic here, Philip Kennicott, to figure out what exactly is holding things up. So he did some digging, and he said it just doesn't look to be a very active project. Their tax forms seem to show that they haven't yet raised anywhere near the amount of money that they need for a monument. They also don't seem to have a location yet, which is particularly tricky since D.C. is essentially not allowing new monuments along the National Mall. It seems that the efforts to create an Adams Memorial have been kind of concurrent with a greater complexity of the memorial-making process in Washington. Um, it's always been hard, it's always been contested, but um, in the past years and, and decades there's been a feeling that um, Washington is full up with memorials, or at least the center of Washington, what we call the monumental core. And in fact, there's actually been um, legislative action taken um, to say that um, the monumental core of Washington is a um, substantially completed work of civic art. Um, translated, what that means is it's kind of done down by the mall. This one's sort of a sad case in a way, um, especially if you like the, the Adams family. It's sad not to see them memorialized. But it's also, it would have been an interesting memorial because unlike previous memorials, it really wasn't um, designated to be just about John Adams, the, the founding father. It was really about Adams and the Adams family legacy. So in the authorizing legislation, they mentioned not only his son, John Quincy Adams, um, but his great-grandson, Henry Adams, the great 19th century writer. And that would have made, I think, for a really interesting design challenge for um, a, a contemporary architect, because it's not about celebrating a single figure, it's about, or even a single political figure, but celebrating the legacy of accomplishment that the family had over decades. And I think the notion of an Adams family memorial, looking down the generations at not just the political accomplishment, not just the leadership on the issue of abolition, but the literary accomplishment, that could really bring forward new ideas that we haven't seen and 
so I might actually, um, you know, squelch my usual <laughs> reticence about wanting uh, new memorials and say, this could be a fun project, this could be a really interesting um, challenge to the typologies of Washington memorials. Kirk Savage is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh and the author of the book Monument Wars. He's one of the country's leading experts on public monuments and spaces. So I decided to also ask him what he thought the value of an Adams memorial might be. I think the relationship of Adams to slavery would be a really, really key part of the memorial. You know, you have to make them relevant to what's happening today. And the whole issue of slavery has been so overlooked in the monuments on the mall for the most part. You know, it's really misleading in the Jefferson Memorial, for example. The Jefferson Memorial sort of makes him look like an abolitionist <laughs> when he was actually, you know, a huge slave slave holder. Um, the Lincoln Memorial also was limited in how it could deal with the issue of slavery. And Washington Monument, of course, doesn't at all. So I think, you know, especially now, since we're really beginning to deal with this legacy in a different way. We're looking at the relationship of slavery to Black Lives Matter and other issues that are really current right now. I would figure out some way to try to make that a leading issue in the memorial, because that's what's going to really make it come alive, I think, for people. And the fact that he was a great man or did this or that or, or, you know, had his problem, you know, did some things we don't like, like the Sedition Act and did some things we do like, is less relevant. I mean, that's more for academic historians to parse out, but using him as a kind of lens on the issue of slavery in the founding of the nation would be really interesting. So what's the likelihood we might actually see a John Adams memorial? Well, they have time, but they're going to have to have a huge organizational effort. Um, you know, the the tax forms that I've seen suggest they're not bringing in a lot of money, certainly nothing on the scale that it's going to take, not just to, to build a memorial, which you know, we're talking dozens of millions, even over 100 million, depending on what you, you plan, but to have in place the people to do this. I mean, you have to have really skilled um, Washington uh, rainmakers you know, to, to get through um, the, the process. I mean, there are environmental statements, there are uh, historical issues, they're you know, simply putting together a um, an office and knowing how to negotiate, uh, you know, all the various um, committees and, and commissions that you have to go through. That's that takes you know a lot of expertise. And at this point, they don't seem to be anywhere near um, getting that kind of um, assault on this project underway. Given all the money and time and red tape it takes to get a monument, it seems worth asking the question whether the effort is worth it and what's really the power today of a huge stone edifice to someone. You know, I think most people don't really remember very much from their history books, <laughs> you know, from textbooks. Um, but they do really remember what they see. And especially on the mall in Washington, you know, you have a, if you visit it, you have a very clear kind of mental map of what the main monuments are there. So I think this is really significant, not so much for the facts that are represented there, but more for which figures or which events we 
kind of set aside as being important, you know, what what people are really valued and remembered, which ones aren't. Those kinds of things become, in a way, sort of shape people's sense of history. They really produce history by making those decisions. And often those decisions are really haphazard, but people don't know that. You know, they don't know necessarily that one person has a monument and another person doesn't for very odd reasons. But um, the net result of it is that we have a landscape that honors certain people and certain things and doesn't others. And that really shapes, our, you know, the sense of what the nation is. What's really interesting to me in talking with Philip Kennicott was that I learned it's actually quite surprising we have any big monuments in D.C. at all. George Washington initially worked with the French civil engineer Pierre L'Enfant to plan the city of Washington, D.C. They mapped out the grid of streets, the long green space at the National Mall, where the White House would go, where the Capitol building would go. In all of these ways, it, it had sort of the design and feel of a European city. But there was one way in which they did not want it to be European, and that was this American sense that we did not want the European tradition of grand monuments. All the forces, all the winds, are against the idea of making memorials. There's a, there's a feeling in the um, 18th century that you remember people through their words and through their deeds and through their actions. You remember them through a kind of process of living memory and history. So not only is there a sense that um, you know monuments made out of marble are outdated, but that they're also dangerous, that they celebrate the cult of a single person, that they elevate the meaning of somebody's accomplishments um, above the masses. They're a, they're a relic of um, authoritarian rule, and we shouldn't do that. Or if we do it, we should make really, really simple ones, just a, a plaque on the ground or a simple stone marker. If someone were looking at the current state of how we memorialize and how we build monuments today from the perspective of someone who was sitting in one of those early congresses in the early 19th century, they would find our moment today really corrupt. They'd say, look, you've totally forgotten the notion that you want these things to live through history. You want people to be educated about um, their history, to understand it, to read the words of the person. Um, and to build a memorial um, is a corruption of that notion. What's happened in a very bizarre way is that we now use memorials to teach. So we don't even expect people to come to the memorial with that understanding of the importance that somebody in the early 19th century felt was absolutely essential to perpetuating history. We build the thing and then we put you know, uh, interactive screens and a lot of text panels and um, you know, we have brochures and bookstores. So the memorial has kind of merged with the museum function. Um, and now there's a real urgency about building them because, frankly, of a failure of, of civic education. So now the, the feeling is um, that we have to build these things really as a defense against forgetting. Um, there are other reasons, and to be a little bit more cynical, they're basically political partisan. You know, when, when a president leaves office, um, we live in contentious times, his legacy is up for grabs. People have to keep contesting it. They keep having to fight and say, no, this is, this is what this really means. A monument literally fixes things in stone. You know, if you set something in stone, you put it beyond argument. And with somebody like Washington, that wasn't a problem because there was essentially universal agreement of what his accomplishments were and what they meant and that he was a great man and, and why. 
But there aren't that many figures like Washington in public life. Certainly not Jefferson. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of stuff to argue <laughs> with in Jefferson's past. Mm -hmm. So the more text you add, the more explanation, the more educative the memorial comes, the more definitive things you're saying about that person. In a sense, the more things you're setting in stone that should rather be still in argument. Monuments, of course, are far from the only art form that has been used to cement presidential legacy. We see legacy building all around us in presidential libraries and photography and paintings. The usefulness of each of these art and architecture forms, though, of course, changes somewhat as the times themselves change. You know, it's still not uncommon for an old-fashioned portrait to be painted. Um, and there's something sort of charming and quaint about that. But I don't think anybody believes that the painted portrait is a means of controlling the image of the person yeah. uh, anymore. That's gone. What I find interesting about Obama's presidency is that he's often criticized and praised for doing a lot more appearances within popular culture, um, going on the late night talk shows. I'm President Barack Obama. And I, too, want to slow jam the news. You know, people will say, oh, well, that's not presidential. Um, other people will say, that humanizes the man, that, that brings him closer. Um, political strategists will say, this is a way of bypassing the filters of the mainstream media, getting the president in front of a, a friendly audience, and thus controlling and projecting an image. All of that's probably true. But it also strikes me that there's something very canny about this that has to do with legacy. Because if you think forward in, say, 20, 25, 30 years, um, whether it's YouTube or some successor medium to YouTube, very likely the first clips that come up when you search in Obama's name are not going to be the State of the Union address or a press conference. They're going to be those appearances um, in popular culture. And given that we're only progressing more and more towards a kind of media celebrity entertainment culture, that's where memory is going to cluster. So it's possible that a television series to John Adams might actually have done much more to revive his memory than a huge monument in D.C. could ever do. Still, it'll be interesting to see if he does ultimately get his place among the other monuments along the National Mall. While this is the end of the road for the John Adams podcast, it's not all over for the Adams family. In a few short weeks, we'll be talking about his son, John Quincy Adams. Next up, though, is Thomas Jefferson, and we'll have a lot of great guests for that episode, including the biographer John Meacham. Music for this podcast is by Dave Westner, and a special thanks this week goes to our guests David McCullough, Julie Miller, Kirk Savage, and Philip Kennicott. Thank you so much for listening to this second episode of Presidential. And if you're not listening to the podcast on iTunes, you should go to iTunes.com slash Presidential because you can subscribe there for free and then you get all of our episodes as soon as they come out every Sunday, just waiting in your phone or on your computer. If you just can't get enough of John Adams, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Presidential underscore WP where we will be posting lots of cool stuff about John Adams all week. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back for Thomas Jefferson. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to the Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash Constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.